Today, uh, we're going to begin in Romans chapter 3 and 4. We're doing this series on God's rescue project, and we want to look today at justification, God's gift to those he rescues. God's gift to those he rescues. And uh, we're going to be looking at three things about justification, the cost of it, the condition to have it, and then I'll look at two characters that God gave it to. Um, our hero, as Matt beautifully dubbed our Savior, uh, has paid the cost to justify sinners. And then we want to be clear on the condition so that you not don't get mixed up on that. Then we want to do a case study on just two characters. Let me give you a theological definition of justification. First of all, justification, if it helps you, it's from the Greek word meaning righteous. It just means righteous. But what justification means, how could God ever declare you to be in the right with him? He says, there's none righteous, no, not one. He says that in Romans 3.10. Well, if he says that about us, how could he ever say, you are right in my sight? So when you hear justification, which is simply the Latin word that took, that's what the Vulgate did with the Greek word, righteous dikaios, Latin justificare, and now justified means I am in a right relationship with God. But how? But how? How can it be? Now, let's give a theological de definition. I'll try to go by memory. I had to memorize this when I was 19. Let's see if the memory's working. You won't ever know the difference. It is that judicial act of God whereby he declares a hell-deserving sinner to be righteous in his sight Amen. based upon the imputed righteousness of Christ. Amen. Is that beautiful? beautiful? I mean, he declares you to be in the right because he imputed or he counted to your credit the righteousness of Jesus. You see, everything God wants to give you, if you wind up in Jesus, he can give you anything. He can give you everything. We're blessed with all spiritual blessings. Where? In heavenly places. In Christ, and that gets you into heavenly places. All right? So, that judicial act of God, it's a courtroom scene. You can walk out of the court, declare not guilty in God's sight, with God being the judge, because he sees you clothed in a righteousness not your own. This is what Luther said. This is the fundamental essential of Christianity. The church stands or falls on whether you understand this. You cannot be saved any other way. It's the full explanation of the gospel. It's one to say Jesus died, buried, rose again. That's wonderful. That's historical. He died. Now, he did say he died for our sins. That gets, now we know why. But I've, I've heard people just, if you say that, that saves. Well, uh, it saved the Corinthians, but he did unpackage it a little bit. Romans is the unpackaging of what the historical facts accomplished. He did die for our sins. He was buried. He did rise again. But we want to now take a journey and see. I'm going to reach back and see what the hero did. That's the cost. What price God had to pay to get to justify you. Look at Romans 3. We pick up verse 21 where Matthew was last week. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned in the past and are all falling short in the present. 
of the glory of God. It reflects a past tense and a present falling. And are justified by his grace as a gift. You see that? And are justified because they deserve it. Grace you don't deserve. And it's even a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show or demonstrate his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Three things. The cost to God to ever get a sinner right in his sight. Three things, and Matt taught on this last week. He had to pay a price with his own blood to redeem you, to buy you out. And by the way, when we say the blood of Christ, uh, we're not just talking blood plasma. Yes, he had blood plasma, but it's a phrase loaded with greater meaning. It means a vicious death under the penalty of God. When the lamb died, and his blood was spilt. Blood was the shorthand for the jugular vein was slit. They died. Another took their life. Christ didn't die of measles. He didn't die of some disease up in Galilee. He died under the wrath of God. And he did that to purchase you, to redeem you out from sin. Second thing he did before God he satisfied God's anger towards your sins and my sins. God wasn't angry with his son, but God made him to be my sin. And so God said, you'll have to bear my wrath if you take their place. And he says, I choose to do it. And he satisfied every righteous claim God had against you in his death. And so this word is he propitiated or he satisfied God's wrath, his anger. Now, the pagans practiced this. They were always bringing sacrifices, and they thought you could buy off an angry God, so they were always bringing offerings. God says, there's nothing mankind can bring me that can satisfy my anger towards their sin. I alone can provide what will subside and satisfy my wrath. I will bring the sacrifice. I'll go to Mount Moriah with Isaac, and the knife will plunge into this son. I will take him, and only he, God provides the only thing that will satisfy him, his only beloved son. It's not you and I bringing our paltry sacrifices, our good works, our offerings, whatever. He says, you can never buy me off. You can never get my wrath to subside. Only my son bearing the wrath for you can it ever be satisfied. It costs God everything to save you. And then he uses a Greek word. He demonstrated this, which the idea is God's character was on trial when it comes to saving you. He had to prove he was just while declaring you to be just. He had to vindicate his character, and he went public. He, he did it out in the open. He could have done it up in the north of Palestine. He could have done it in secret. He could have done a lot. But he said, no, we're going to go to the capital. We're going to go to Jerusalem. We're going to get a public spectacle where my son hangs nearly naked on a cross. I want all of creation so much that all the lights in the universe went out because I am going to publicly show you what I will pay to save a sinner. This is what it costs God to save sinners. The blood of his son, this is death, a satisfaction that only Jesus could provide. And the demonstration, I am so righteous, I let no one go to heaven free. 
You don't go to heaven free. It just didn't cost you anything. It cost heaven everything. This salvation is full and free to you, but never to God. Never to God. He poured out his wrath upon his son. It was the price he was willing to pay to get to have you next to him for eternity. It's uh, overwhelming. I mean, has your wife ever said, you need to get out of the house, I need a break? <laughs> How about God paying the price for you never to be separated from him? Amen. Never separated. I just gave the illustration to show you what I mean. <laughs> now, um, this righteousness comes to us, what's the condition for getting it? How can I get this righteousness? Well, uh, he said in 320, none can be justified by works of the law. You, you can't keep the law of Moses and make it to heaven. Not that anyone ever has, but he said, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. He goes in chapter 4, as we'll be looking at Abraham as this great example. He says, because the Jews would say, well, you've got to be circumcised to be right with God. You've got to do some religious ritual. Other people circumcised, but Genesis 17, God said, it's a sign of the covenant between you, Abraham, and your offspring. I want every male circumcised on the eighth day. And, and the Jews did that like some people do baptism. Well, I've been baptized. I've been circumcised. That was the Jewish argument. And he says, yeah, but your father, Abraham, was never circumcised when God declared him right. It was before circumcision. And then it goes on to say, uh, it wasn't under law. for uh, He was never under the law. Moses came after Abraham. So it wasn't depending on circumcision. wasn't depending on the law. So you can't be right with God by religious activity. You can't be right with God by so-called keeping the rules. No, no, no. You just can't. Well, how can I? Well, it's by faith alone. Look at 3.22 where he says, for all uh, the righteousness of God comes to us through faith. And Luther added the word alone. In Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus to be received by faith alone. He justifies those who have faith in Jesus alone. Verse 26, 28, for we hold that one is justified by faith alone apart from works of the law. Luther added alone, and Roman Catholic scholars criticizing for it. Who do you think you are to add alone? And this was a reason. As an Augustinian monk, he slept on a plywood, piece of wood called a bed. He fasted two to three times a week. He uh, inflicted pain on himself. He fasted. He prayed. He went to his confessor, John Stobbitz, and would stay in the confessional booth two hours at a time. Stobbitz uh, saw him usually daily, and one time he went back to the confessional, and it just been overnight, and Stobbitz said, Stop it, Luther. You couldn't have sinned that much. It's only been 24 hours. You went to sleep through the night. But he could get no relief from the... Uh, 
shortcomings. He was a student of the Word at the university. And he said, I'm, a, I'm an ungodly man. I, ca I can't get it out of my thoughts. I can't do that. And he just felt this total uh, indictment. He was guilty, guilty, guilty before God. And in his tradition, he was taught, you've got to not only believe in Jesus, but you've got to have uh, baptism. You've got to have the sacraments. You've got to go to confession. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to, you've got to. It never ended. And he kept do, going through it. Here he had the, he was nearly killed in the lightning storm, and he promised Saint Anne, I'll be a monk. I was headed to be a lawyer. His father never forgave him for giving up law to become a priest. But he was so thankful God spared him in the storm. And yet, when he came here, he said, it's not by faith plus. It's not by uh, Christ plus. It's not plus anything. Once you put a plus, it quits being the gospel. Christ alone saves. Faith alone saves. Alone. Don't add anything to it. And what did Paul tell the Judaizers in Galatians? If I or an angel from heaven comes to you and adds anything to this gospel, let him be anathema. No additions, no additions, no additions. And if you're not clear on this, you can be religious to your toenails and go to hell. It's Christ alone you must trust. You must come to him by faith alone. See, faith is the only thing you can do and not do anything. Just believe God can do it. So, the only way you can be saved is by faith alone. Ah, but the Jewish mind would ask, what about Abraham? Oh, I'm hearing Paul say, I'm glad you brought it up. Let me tell you about Abraham. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather? Chapter 4, verse 1, according to the flesh. If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. He had no works he knew that impressed God. For what does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham did not work. He believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Notice the word counted. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 6, verse 8, five times. And the word counted is a word to put to one's credit. It was used of ledgers. Put it to someone's account. Give them credit for something. And so he says here, when he believed, God gave him credit, put to his account righteousness. Many of the rabbis translate Genesis 15, 6 that's being quoted. They'll say, and Abram was faithful and God counted him righteous. They made it. He was a good man. He, he did good works. He won. The, it, it's mis, Mr. He believed. He wasn't faithful. He believed in him who was faithful. See? He will hold me fast. Not you. I, you know, we used to sing, he, we used to sing, my father told I will let nothing separate me from his love. Well, once I come to understand grace, I change it. He won't let nothing because my grip gets pretty weak. I slip out any moment if it's my grip. It's God's grip on me that's keeping me, not my grip on him. Now let's tell the story of Abraham. Abraham according to Joshua, was a moon worshiper when he lived in Ur of Chaldee, present-day Iraq.
when he was living there with Haran, Terah, other family members, God one day says, Abram, I want you to leave her and go to a land that I show you. And if I was Abram, I would have said, where's the map? God said, no map. Just go where I tell you. Who looked up Abram? Where was Billy Graham? God looked this man up. I see people don't believe in election. You can't believe in Abraham. God just said, boom. I mean, 11 chapters of Genesis. Three chapters of the fall. Chapter 4, Cain is killed. Chapter 5, in that day, men begin to call upon God. Chapter 6, the earth was so bad, God said, I want to destroy it with a flood. Chapter 8, the earth is destroyed. Chapter 9, we start over again. Chapter 10, the table of nations. Chapter 11, Babel. We're scattered. And all of a sudden, God said, I want to start all over. I saved Noah. I'm going to save another man. He is a Gentile at that time. He's a moon worshiper. So he's an idol worshiper. And I'm going to call him and say, you know what, Abram? I'm going to bring nations out of you. I'm going to give you a land. I'm going to bless you. Is that right? Who do you think you are? God? Oh, okay. And so, nephew Lot gets in trouble. And the kings around Sodom, they raided the area. They stole Lot. He was captured. Uncle Abram hears about it. He goes down. He rescues nephew Lot. On the way back, he meets a man by the name of Melchizedek, and he gives him a tenth of everything of the spoils. Something very beautiful in the story. The king of Sodom said, I want you to have everything we took from the spoil. Abram says, no, you keep it all. I never want it to be said when I become wealthy that the king of Sodom made me wealthy. I want God to give me whatever I get. Wouldn't take a shoestring if you read the narrative. I don't want any of it. Chapter 15, though, it says he was a little bit scared. He was afraid of reprisals from the kings. And he said he's in his tent, and God comes to him. He says, Abram, stop being afraid. I will be your shield. You know, a better one tent isn't too good a fortress. I'll be your shield and your exceeding great reward. Abram said, well, I'm glad you brought up reward. Because all I got in my house is a barren wife and me. I'm about 99 years old. And I got this slave Eliezer around here. I guess I'm going to have to have children. But he's going to get everything I own because you won't give me any children. I have no posterity. God said, Abram, follow me. I want you to step out of the tent and out in that desert, no artificial light. Look up, would you? Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, start counting. One, two, three, four. Yeah? He said, there's your posterity. God, I just want one. <laughs> we don't have one. He said, I said, look up there. I'm going to make you have enough posterity you'll think it's the stars of the heaven. I, I, I'm going to give. This, this is your posterity coming. Look at the heavens. Now, I know Sarah's barren. She can't have children. And you're going to be nearly 100 years of age by the time I fulfill the promise. Uh, what do you think, Abram? If you said it, I believe you. I believe you. I believe you've got the power to keep your promise. That's all he did. God said, you know, you know what, Abram? Just for doing that, I'm going to count you righteous. I'm going to give you credit for being right with me. 
Now, Paul takes this. He said, this is the basis of New Testament salvation. Because in the New Testament, God says, I can save you. And you go out and say, I don't believe it. You don't know I'm ungodly. You don't know the sins I've done. You don't know how corrupt I am. Uh, uh, wait, wait, wait. Would you look at Calvary? Okay, I'll look. I, I'm, putting, I'm going to put all your sins there. And then I, I'm going to kill my son. Men are going to help me out. There'll be seven people I, I will accuse for killing my son. He names them in Acts. But I'll be one of the killers. I will put you to death. And, and uh, but well, how, can, how can a corpse do anything for me? Oh, by the way, I have the power to raise him from the dead. If I could take Sarah's womb that is as good as dead and bring a nation out of it, I could raise my son. He said, Ooh, wait, 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 can you believe that? Your whole eternity will rest on whether you believe God can keep the promise of the gospel to save you because he raised one dead man from the dead in, in Christ. And he's saying, you're dead in sin. I can raise you too if you believe. Now watch what he says here. What then shall we say? It, it, was he justified by works? No. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. But this, gift, this is a gift God's giving, so you can't earn it by wage. God doesn't owe you a wage. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted, is imputed, is put to his credit as righteousness. When you believe God, he puts the righteousness of Christ to your credit. And notice who, what kind of people he justifies. What kind? To the, to the church going who believes he justifies. Does your say that? <laughs> what kind? I can't hear you. You can go to heaven if you can live perfect, or you can trust the gospel. Yeah, you better. When you've been as ungodly as us. You've never been perfect. No one. To the ungodly, that's not very complimentary. Some translate it to the wicked. I hate to think that I was wicked at 14. I, my children were saved at five. Say, hey, you little wicked, ungodly thing, you, you need Christ. <laughs> but in God's sight, he said, I wasn't in your interest. You, you didn't think of me. When I was studying justification in college, we used to use a book by William R. Newell, who used to teach at Moody uh, Institute in Chicago. And he tells the story, William R. Newell, footnote in his book, of how he was holding Bible, daily Bible studies at the Century Theater in St. Louis, Missouri. And while I was there, uh, one day, a man came up to him and said, I am captain, and in the book he doesn't give his name, but a man very widely known in the city. And he sat down to talk with Newell, and he said, you are talking to the most ungodly man in town. Now, I said, well, thank God. What, he cried, do you mean you are glad that I am bad? No, I said, but I'm certainly glad to find a sinner that knows he is a sinner. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, you do not know the how. 
I have been absolutely ungodly for years and years and years right here in St. Louis. I own two Mississippi steamers. And, of course, gambling, prostitution, drunkenness, everything happened on those steamers. Everybody knows me. I am just the most ungodly man in St. Louis. I could hardly get him to be quiet enough to ask him, did you hear me preach on the ungodly people today? Mr. Newell, he said, I have been coming to these meetings for six weeks. I do not think I've missed a meeting, but I cannot tell you a word of what you said today. I did not sleep last night. I've hardly slept for three weeks. I've gone to one man after another in this city to find what to do and what they say. I've read the Bible. I've prayed but I am the most ungodly wretch in this town, and I don't know how to change. I waited here today to ask you, I am so ungodly, what can I do? Now I said, let's turn to the verse that I preached. And he turned, he had him read it. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is counted as righteousness. And Noel says to him, uh, uh, but he cried, how can this be for me? I am the most ungodly man in St. Louis. Wait, I said, I beg you, go on reading. So he read, to him that worketh not, but believeth on him, he will justify the ungodly. There, he fairly shouted, that's what I am. Then I said, the verse says not to do, and you want me to tell you something to do. I cannot do that. Now, there must be something to do. If not, I shall be lost forever. Now, listen with all your soul, I said. There was something to do, but it has been done. Amen. Then I told him how God so loved him, and all godly as he was, that he sent Christ to die for the ungodly, and that God's judgment had fallen on Christ, who has been forsaken of God for his captain so-and-so sins there on the cross. Then I said, God raised up Christ and sent us preachers to beseech men and the ungodly as they are to believe on this God who declares righteous the ungodly on the ground of Christ's shed blood. The captain said, I will accept that proposition. The next day he came to the theater and he asked Newell, said, May I say a word to the audience? And he gets up. I want to tell all of you of the greatest proposition I ever found. I am a businessman and know a good proposition. But I found one yesterday that so filled me with joy that I could not sleep a wink all night. I found out that God, for Jesus' sake, declares righteous any ungodly man that trusts him. I trusted him yesterday, and you all know what an ungodly man I was. I thank you all for listening to me, but I felt I could not help but tell you of this wonderful proposition that God should count me righteous. I have been such a great sinner. The gospel justifies ungodly people. It justified you. Your sin isn't greater than the atonement. Your sin is not greater than the cross. You're, don't you insult God and say, oh, you don't know what I've done. God knows every sin you've ever done, want to do, wish you could have done, what you might do. He said, I have paid it in full at Calvary. I will count you righteous if you'll believe me. If you'll believe me. If you'll believe me. God is occupying heaven with people that Christ paid the price to justify. 
He believed God. And it goes on in uh, Romans 4, if you read the rest of the narrative, it said, against hope he believed. Though he considered his body as good as dead, and when he looked at Sarah, though a beautiful woman, and he said, you just can't give me children. Your womb has become a tomb. There's no life. But if God said, you and I are going to have a family, we're going to have a family. You better start decorating the room. You better, you know, they couldn't buy any pampers. They just had to get ready. <laughs> but just think, as a hundred-year-old man, not, a, not Hagar and Ishmael, but you shall have a promised son through Sarah. And he takes that, so likewise, brother, has God put his son to death because of your transgressions and because he's going to declare you righteous, he raised his son from the dead and he said, if I can make an old couple all of a sudden become the father of nations and kings will come out of them, Messiah will come out of them, what can I do for anyone that will believe my promise? I'll give them righteousness. One other character, then we close. David speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteous apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven. Surely not adultery. Because he was an adulterer, was he not? Surely not murder. We can't go to a prison and tell a murderer God can make, give you credit for the righteousness of Christ if you'll believe. You can't say that, can you? David says you can. David said, I'll be there. I was treachery. I'm what you write soap operas about. A treacherous, lusting old man that had many women in his harem, but I wanted one more and applauded. I was evil. I was as crooked as I could be. Blessed is the man, and I'm that man. He didn't charge with the sin. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. You remember he told God in Psalm 51, if you demanded a sacrifice, I'd bring it, but there's nothing in the law that says I can atone for what I did. All I can give you is a broken heart. God said, I'll forgive you because I see Calvary even from where you are, David. Someday I'm going to pick up the debt and pay it. I want to pay for your adultery. I want to pay for your murder. I want to pay for your plot. God can't save those kind of people. Heaven's going to be full of them. Heaven's going to be full of them. You couldn't get them there, but God can. God can. God can, because God paid a price. God paid a price. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Anybody here like that? My dad used to read that verse to me. He said, who is that man if it's not me? I said, well, have you robbed a bank or something? He said, no, you just don't know what a sinner your daddy is. Your daddy's a great sinner but I got a great Savior. When they buried John Newton, that's what he had on his epitaph. Here lies a great sinner that had a great Savior. See, this is our gospel. This is our gospel. That's why Luther said, this is the plank of all Christianity. And I tell you, I cannot tell you enough how this message is what gets lost in church. We fuss about more minor things. We get preoccupied with this, with that, with this, with that. This is what he built the church on. This is what heaven gets filled by. This gospel, this gospel, not works, not Phariseeism, not thinking you're right. Have you ever said, I am ungodly, I fall short of the divine expectations. No matter if I haven't done 90 terrible sins, I fall short. I cannot merit a righteous standing. And God says, can you believe? 
Can you believe my promise that I can give you the marriage of Christ? And I'll put it on your account. And by, that's the positive. I get a positive righteousness. And by the way, watch this. I just erased every sin you've ever done. It's all erased. You got erased. It won't be charged against you. I charged it to my son. And now my son's righteousness I've charged to you. God made him to be sin for us. He took my sin that I might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. I read when Bunyan, he was so convicted about his sins for months, he could find no peace. And he said one night, He's walking through a weed field, and he said, all of a sudden, the words of another great sinner came to him, Philippians 3, 9, and that I might be found in him having a righteousness not of the law, but the righteousness that comes to us by faith in Christ. I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ. God can treat you like he treats his son because he sees you clothed in him. And so many churchmen, we stay beat up with our guilt and our shortcomings and all the failures. We're, we're full of them. We're full. You know what? He didn't say he made you perfect. He imputes righteousness. The Catholic Church said he infuses righteousness. He makes you righteous at that. No, 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 no. You, you get saved and you go away, you're still a sinner. You still can blow it. You can still sin. God's got to spend a lifetime teaching you to act right. And he's working on it. By the time he's got you perfected, he's going to take you home. No, he's spending a lifetime getting us there. But in a moment, in an instant, he declares you to have a righteousness that's only found in Christ. Can you believe Christ? Have you? You want to go to heaven? Believe God's promise that he can raise you from the depth of your sin and from the depth of your ungodliness. Admit, I can never merit you. I can't do enough to please you. I want, I want to go to heaven. I, uh, I close. I, I'm often moved by it on believing a promise. I've told it before, uh, be, but it's moving that... Uh, I went to a preaching convention in Fresno before I started this church, and a man got up and he told the story of how uh, a soul-moving revival had happened in their community. And this one man in the community was converted. These were uh, Oklahoma, Arkansas tent meetings, revival, probably about 1930s in that period of time. Many people coming to Christ. And this one man became a believer, but his wife was unsaved and his children were not saved. But this man began to have strange habits in which he was gone every morning, gone every morning and be out of the house soaked before the sun ever came up. And this went on for weeks. And finally, the wife was curious what got him out of bed so early. So she told the eldest son, I want you to get up in the morning and track your father. I don't know where he's going so early. I don't know what's happening. Find out for me. Try not to be seen. Tell me what you find out. So the boy started doing this, did it for about a week. And uh, uh, finally, he told his mom, she asked, what's going on? And he said, Mom, I followed him to the edge of town. I followed him a little bit in the woods. And there's a cut-off log there. And he, he goes there and he kneels and he prays every morning. He prays about an hour before he goes to work. And, uh, and she said he says some strange things, but... I'm not sure. Well, in a matter of time, the wife got saved. Matter of time, three or four children were saved. And finally, one morning, they were all sitting around breakfast. 
and the wife's going to say, Honey, you don't know, but I've been having your son track you for weeks and tells me you go to this place and that you pray and whatever. She said, he said that you, you, you said some kind of strange things and that they could hear you uttering at times in that prayer that you, every day you seem to say, but you promised. Amen. But you promised. She said, we're curious. We're curious. What did you mean by that? He said, oh, oh, he said, that's Acts 16, 31 and 32. And she said, what's that? He said, it says, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and your whole household. And I've been quoting to God every morning, but you promise, but you promise, but you promise. And what was the clincher for me? He said, I know this to be true because I was the eldest son. I was the one that tracked him. And I've been preaching the gospel now for 30 years. But I am a result of a morning prayer meeting that my dad said, I want to cash in a promise. The cross surely bought my boy. The cross surely bought my wife. But you promised. Let me tell you, you're going to be governed by problems or guided by promises. On Valentine's morning, Carol and I rehearsed our years together and what we've seen God do, and we simply said, He's kept His promise. He's kept His promise. He's kept his promise. If you're here and you've never received Christ, can you believe God? Not can you perform. Can you believe? It's not your faithfulness that saves. It's God's faithfulness. Can you simply believe it? Someone has said faith is not a work. It's an empty hand that receives the work. God, God, your faith isn't what saves ultimately. Oh, no. Christ alone saves. But faith is what receives the gift. You know, we often say, uh, to grace, what a debtor I am. Lewis Chafer used to always say, grace never incurs a debt. If you got it in grace, you can never pay it. If I gave you something graciously, I didn't put you in debt. I expect nothing in return. God expects nothing from you but to believe him. Can you do God? Do you think God can keep a promise? Your whole eternity is going to depend on your answer. If you don't, you will perish. But whoever believes in him, God will give righteousness, eternal life, and forgiveness. I ask you to believe. I ask you to believe. Our Father, we love you. We are astounded on the terms of our salvation. Jesus did all the suffering. Jesus did all the pain. All you're asking me to do, do you believe me? Do you believe me? <clears throat> Do you believe I gave my son to pay for your sins? Do you hear me? I'm not asking you to sign up to do a bunch of works. I'm asking you, can you believe I can keep my promises? I didn't have to make the promises. I, I didn't have to do anything about you. I could have let you perish. I could let you die. Your sins deserve it. They deserve it. They deserve it. What I'm offering comes out of a free heart of grace. I don't want to treat you like you deserve. I want to give you what you could never earn. I want to give you a free gift. I just ask you, trust me. Trust me. Can you trust me? I can forgive you. You haven't sinned anything so deep that I cannot forgive. Though your sins be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. I am a cleanser, a forgiver, 
I won't even charge you. I won't even charge you for the crime because Jesus paid for it. Father, angels wish they could preach this message, but you've entrusted it to your church, forgiven sinners to tell others. Make us witnesses of this gospel. And if there's anyone here today that does not know you, I pray that you'll save them. They won't be saved by raising their hand or walking down an aisle. You all have to do the work in their heart. But you said once they believe in their heart, they'll confess it with their mouth. And according to the New Testament, they'll even publicly be baptized to say, I put faith in Jesus. I'm not ashamed to own him. I'm not ashamed that I'm now trusting him. Jesus, I trust you. Forsaking all others, I trust you. We thank you. You saved us by grace through faith and that not of ourselves. This is the work of God. As you walk with the Lord in the light of his word, what a glory he sheds on our way while we do his good will. He abides with us still and with all who will trust and obey. Let's stand. Trust and obey. For there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. The course, your little weak. Trust and obey, for there's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. Father, take us from this place to live a life of faith and a life of obedience. That's the whole Christian life. If you love me, you'll obey me. If you love me, you'll trust me. I've never failed you yet. It's impossible for God to fail. You can never fail. Jesus never fails.